Hi, this is K.S. Garner, and you're listening to the Solo Nerdbird Podcast, and today I'll be discussing the history of fantasy art. So defining fantasy art, to define the undermined subset, first we have to define the umbrella terms of art and fantasy. Fantasy, a noun, plural, fantasies. Imagination, especially when extravagant and unrestrained. The forming of mental images, especially wondrous or strange fancies. Imaginative conceptualizing. A mental image, especially when unreal or fantastic. A vision. Art, a noun. The quality, production, expression, or realm. According to aesthetic principles or what is beautiful, appealing, or of more than ordinary significance. The class of objects subject to aesthetic criteria, works of art collectively as paintings, sculptures, or drawings. A field, genre, or category of art define arts collectively, often excluding architecture. Any field using the skills or techniques of art. My reasoning for clearly defining these words was so people could get into their heads what those words literally mean, not just what society deems them to be. Most of this essay will include excerpts from Enchanted, a history of fantasy illustration, published to coincide with a major expedition organized by the Norman Rockwell Museum. This book reveals how artists have brought to life mythology, fables, and fairy tales. The main text of Enchanted by the curator Jesse Kowalski traces the emergence of the themes of fantasy in the world's civilizations and the development of fantasy illustration. Evolving with the taste of each generation and expanding from book to magazine illustration to comics, animation, cinema, role-playing games, video games, and more. Additional essays by distinguished contributors highlight specific aspects of fantasy illustration, including the connections between science and fantasy illustration in the Victorian age, the role of architects, various legacies and brands of artistic um, styles. But this is a must-have reference for artists, illustrators, and all who love fantasy. In the preface, Arnie Finner director of Spectrum Fantastic Art, begins with a quote from Ray Bradbury. Quote, I define science fiction as the art of the possible, fantasy art of the impossible. End quote. I agree with Bradbury's statement, but I don't think of art as one or the other in regards to su- the subject or genre. Art makes everything possible, whether visually through paintings and theater plays, as well as audibly through music even cooking or architecture outside of sculpting, although some would argue those are more crafts than an art, regardless of technique. Whether in art or craft, I believe it all boils down to storytelling and passion. Uh, neither fiction based in facts or fantasy based in, in, in um, imagination diminishes what it means to the audience and even the artist behind the work. Importance of fantasy art. This chapter of um, Enchanted just reiterates what I previously stated. Fantasy outside of the mind and onto the page, the canvas, the big screen, what have you, becomes real. As stated in the chapter, fantasy is an alternate reality. Who amongst us doesn't believe if they could change things, they wouldn't. 
if decisions were made differently would affect what this new variable have on one's personal life or the lives of many, I should say. Uh, fantasy also means how the world can be interpreted, not changing facts, but the stories we've been told and the lessons we've been taught. These stories, good versus evil, Eden, the, the hero's journey, the consequences of committing a deadly sin, the triumph of living a virtuous um, life, reimagining these tales in our own design helps us make sense of the things in the world that aren't based in fact that aren't tangible but that doesn't mean they can't be real to whoever is imagining them fantasy is just as important as logic logic can't be possible without fantasy the earliest known writings are found in the pyramid texts from ancient egypt from about 2400 bce and the and in the um sumerian sumerian i, I believe is how you pronounce it epic of gilgamesh from about 2300 BCE, Gilgamesh is the first known example of the hero's journey, a classic story structure in which the hero sets out on an adventure, encounters adversity, prevails, and returns home transformed. The essential aspects of a hero's journey includes basic archetypes, human frailties, and a journey that includes adventure, loss, and redemption. The hero's journey isn't necessarily ignored as it is an assumption. Joseph Campbell, comparative mythologist, asserted that it, is, it was because women had powerful innate purpose while men had to seek theirs. Quote, a girl becomes a woman with her first menstruation. And what is a woman? A woman is the vehicle of life. With the giving of, the birth, with, with the giving of birth and the giving of nourishment, she is identical with the earth goddess in her powers. The boy does not have a happening of this kind, so he has to be turned into a man and voluntarily become a servant of something greater than himself, end quote. Well, there's a lot to unpack from this quote alone. Um, why is womanhood reduced, reduced down to re reproductive organs? Why is a girl's purpose as a person automatically assigned to giving birth in servitude or quote-unquote the giver? But the boy gets to seek and grab a hold of their purpose in life. He takes what he wants, but she is free. She is forced to give. I ch I choose to address this patriarchal societal construct because it's a recurring theme throughout history, not just in visual art and storytelling that, in all likelihood, started with Gilgamesh. It's Disheartening to read and learn that even in fantasy, women's journeys, experiences, and opinions are not only an afterthought, but mostly non-existing unless associated with a man's. While reading Enchanted, I learned the shocking initial telling of Peter Pan under the name Peter and Wendy by J.M. Barry, where not only does Pan want to remain as a child for life, but when the other boys want to grow up, Pan actually has them killed as new younger boys arrive in Neverland in their place. In Red Riding Hood, um, Charles Perrault, Charles Perrault's original tale provides a stark warning to young girls, quote unquote, of the dark desires of the male of her species. In another version, Lydia Very adds the huntsman to kill the wolf and save Red and her grandmother. Her moral warned 
girls to listen to their mothers and not speak to strangers or they'll be quote-unquote taken by the wolf. Although both are stories of self-discovery, Red Riding Hoods was a stark contrast from Pan's. Why is it Peter Pan is allowed to freely live amongst the wild with his male friends and even kill the ones who, in his eyes, choose to mature emotionally and physically, whereas Red, who doesn't even have a name, is initially killed for playing in the woods on her way to her grandmother's house. And it seems the grandmother is punished for living on her own with no husband or man to provide and protect her. So in another version, this is remedied by introducing the huntsmen to rescue them from the wolf. Women and girls are punished with death for self-discovery and adventure while boys and men are lauded and rewarded for it. The History of Modern Fantasy Illustration Fantasy artists were tasked with carrying forth the story of mankind through traditions and archetypal imagery that stir the emotions. After, Civil, after the Civil War, the American public had a passion for illustrative fiction about rousing subjects such as knights and pirates in periodicals and books. Though the public's strong design for illustration declined after World War I, signaling the end of the Golden Age of Illustration, the demand for illustrated children's literature was on the rise. During the Enlightenment, beginning in the 1600s, revolutions in the fields of philosophy, political theory, and science began to change long-held beliefs. A great cultural shift occurred as traditional depictions of romance and heroism, heroism in literature and art became outdated. The role of mythology played in the evolution of modern society began to lose favor in the Age of Reason. The Age of Enlightenment gave rise to a return to the classical typified by the uh, structures neoclassicism that took hold in architecture, which embraced a, a return to ideals of order, balance, and rationality. The romantic artists and writers of the early 1800s rejected this rationalism, instead celebrating individualism, imagination, and emotion, seeking the sublime or the transcendental. Art historian and archaeologist Carl Kalinske II explains the ways in which the Romantics adapted mythology to serve modern-day society. Quote, Romanticism replaced archaeological, archaeological, archaeological authenticity with agorical fantasy. The Romantics mingled tales with historical accounts to create allegorical allusions, often for political moralizing. Concerned with provoking emotional responses to their art, the Romantics radically altered aspects of classical myths and ancient art and literature to fit the needs of their times. End quote. Romanticizing events can be dangerous if all the facts in an accurate timeline isn't provided to add context. The fantastical myth will live on while the humdrum truth gets lost through misinformed retellings. This has to be there has to be a balance that doesn't interfere with what actually occurred and the listening behind it. The reasoning behind it, I should say. For instance, the current and past educational system has romanticized the Civil War, the Confederacy, and the end of slavery to be synonymous with the end of racism. That the Confederacy is a cultural celebration of rebellion rather than an unpunished treason. For a long time, there was a bold, dark line between fine art and illustration. A big reason why that line thinned out and eventually disappeared over the years is through printing. After 
Johannes Gutenberg introduced printing to Europe in 1439, the rapid rise in the number of books and periodicals spurred an intellectual movement. By 1500, more than 9 million books had been printed. As technology improved in the late 1600s, the quantity of available reading material rose exponentially. In the 1800s, improvements in printing technology such as the use of steam to power printing presses, the iron press, and often offset printing lowered costs and increased the output of published material. This provides context to the level of quality and quantity to work produced during these time periods. The level of resources readily available to some or to all matters. Unfortunately, the increase in resources, tools, education, and printing decreased the value in the work unfairly so. The artists were just adapting to the times they lived in and produced work that paid them, but to keep them out of the fine art world and in their place was a very elitist, very anti-working class sentiment. It wasn't ever about the artwork itself, but its exclusivity. Howard Pyle was famously rejected from teaching at Pennsylvania Academy of Arts because illustration wasn't considered a fine art. European Illustrators of the 1800s Being a professional illustrator became more and more prevalent throughout the 1800s, starting with periodicals and interior illustrations, particularly with children's books. A book sold more copies if there were illustrations inside of them. Illustrators provided glimpses inside of the author's head, whereas the reader may have had difficulty grasping onto their stories. Now, they have an idea of what the author was envisioning during their writing and can follow along more easily, even insert themselves in their own imagery as they read along. A brief roundup of the most influential European fantasy illustrators in their best-known worlds follows. Harry Clark, Fairy Tales by Hans Christensen Anderson and Edgar Allan Poe's Tales of Mystery and Imagination. Walter Crane. Household Stories from Grimm. Edmund Spencer's uh, Fairy Queen and Tales such as Beauty and the Beast. George Cruikshank. Uh, produced political characters and illustrated for Charles Dickinson's Oliver Twist. Richard Doyle. Worked for Human Ma- humor magazine Punch in his own book, In Fairyland, a series of pictures from the elf world which set the standard for designs and fairies for decades to come. Edmund Dulac, uh, color illustration for Sleeping Beauty and other fairy tales and stories from Hans Christensen Andersen. Kate Greenaway wrote and illustrated popular book of nursery rhymes under the window picture Pictures and Rhymes for Children. Fizz, a.k.a. Hablet uh, Knight Brown, The Life and Adventures of Martin, uh, Martin Chesawit and David Copperfield. Beatrice Potter created the tales of Peter Rabbit and the tale of the Flopsy Bunnies. Arthur Rackman, Ra- Rackham, I should say, Arthur Rackham, Rip Van Winkle, Peter Pan and Kensington Gardens, English Fairy Tales and the Fairy Tales of Brothers Grimm, John uh, Tenniel, I'm going to say, uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, 
and what Alice found there. Morris Meredith Williams, Sir Gawain, uh, uh, I'm going to say, and the Lady of Less, or Lies, maybe, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, uh, The Story of the Crusades, The Scottish Fairy Book, and The Northmen in Britain. America's Golden Age of Illustration from the 1800s through the 1920s, that line between fine art and illustration is definitely blurred. The only real difference between the two is if it's mass produced. Just looking at the work alone, these illustrations could easily be paintings hanging on someone's wall. Instead, they're on numerous copies of magazines and newspapers. From Bertha Corson, Cor, let's say Corson days, simple use of crayon in addition to traditional tools such as gouache, and watercolor on Perseus, N.C. Wife's masterful use of bright and mid-tone colors in Bruce on the Beach, and J. Allen St. John's in Shining Armor. St. John also painted many of the most popular book covers in the Tarzan and John Carter series and covers for amazing stories and weird tales. To Joseph Clements, expertly executed cross-hatching in the lost world and Herbert Paws's sole use of the grayscale in I want to say Primus? I'm not sure how to pronounce this but um uh, per, uh Primus and this I believe is how you pronounce it it's like the um telling of Romeo and Juliet before Romeo and Juliet basically Pulp Fiction and Dime Novels Pulp magazines so named because of the inexpensive ground wood pulp paper the stories were printed on caught the eyes of passers-by with their colorful action-packed and often lurid cover art. However sensational the images on the cover, Pulp magazines published fiction written by many respected authors. Edgar Rice Burroughs creation John Carter was introduced in the pages of the All Story magazine in February 1912. His Tarzan debuted in the October 1912 issue. Johnston Macaulay's character Zorro was presented in All Story Weekly in August 1919. H.P. Lovecraft's legendary Cthulhu monster was unveiled in the February 1928 issue of Weird Tales. Robert E. Howard's Conan the Barbarian made his entrance in Weird Tales in December 1932. Pulp magazines endured two world wars in the Great Depression, but the industry faced a steady decline in readership throughout the late 1940s and 1950s. Superhero comics had captured the nation's attention with the debut of Superman in 1938, and readers began buying up new small mass market paperback books branded as pocket books starting in 1939. Paper drives during World War II limited the ability of stock for publication. The explosion in popularity of television throughout the 1950s signaled the end of the, the end for nearly all of the few surviving pulp magazines. Concerned over the effect of comic books on the behavior of American youth in the early 1950s forced many art artists to lighter fare 
in the form of cartoons and periodicals like Mad Magazine. By the late 1960s, baby boomers were coming of age and demanding more thrilling imagery which would be supplied by the new generation of artists and writers. Comic Art Comics originated as satirical and political drawings printed in newspapers and periodicals. Perhaps the most influential political cartoonist of all time was Thomas Nast, who played a large role in bringing down New York Democrat William Boss Tweed's corrupt political machine in the 1870s through a series of heavily critical cartoons. One of the pioneers of the form, Windsor McKay, best known for comic strip Little Nemo in Slumberland, remains a significant figure for cartoonists and animators to this day. First published on October 15, 1905, McKay's weekly Little Nemo strip followed the adventures of Nemo, a young boy whose fantastic nightly dreams were detailed in the comics panels. His extravagant visions were not confined to any particular time or place and were often not based in reality. Each strip ended with Little Nemo awakening in bed in fright or from the rousing words of an adult. The comic strip displayed McKay's mastery of depth of field, perspective, composition, use of color, and uh, storytelling ability. Filling a color 16 by 21 inch page of the Sunday edition of New York Herald, McKay experimented with ingenious use of newspaper of the newspaper page through creatively shaped panels of varying sizes that were altered to adapt to each story. The beloved and extraordinarily enduring comic strip Prince Valiant, created by Hal Foster in 1937, has told a continuous story over the course of 400 plus four I'm sorry over the course of 4000 plus weekly episodes. It takes it takes places largely in Arthurian England and depicts heroic knights in encounters with Merlin, King Arthur, Vikings and naturally a dragon. Drawn by a variety of artists such as Gary Gianni since Foster's retirement in 1971, the comic strip continues to run newspa- to run in newspapers to this day. The time period, events, medium, and tools used to create artwork tells a lot about not just the artists, their strengths and weaknesses, but the culture they lived in. Those details in more context to past works of art. I'm sorry, those details add more context to past works of art rather than any technical details good. Um, the earliest comic books were collections of strips that had already been print that had already been printed newspapers. Published in eighteen ninety seven, The Yellow Kid in Manhattan's Flats is considered to be the first in so much that it bore the phrase comic book on its back cover. The first monthly comic book aptly titled Comic Monthly began publication in 1922. The two features reprints of daily newspaper comic strips. In 1933, Funnies on Parade became the first color book printed in the now standard size 6 5 eighths by 10 and a quarter inches. Right on the cusp of World War II, the world was in 
need of a hero. Inner Superman, making his debut in Action Comics under um, in Action Comics number one in June 1938. Post World War II, there was a significant decline in superhero comics, replaced with horror, crime, and Western stories. But with the Comic Code Authority in place censoring such content, superhero stories returned to the market. Animation. During the 1890s, the development of the Martin film camera invented by August and Louis Lumiere, uh, Thomas Edison and others introduced moving images that could be projected and viewed by groups of theater goers. Due to its innovation, use of humor, and skillful design, Gertie the Dinosaur, created by Winsor McKay, marks the beginning of modern film animation. It was essentially a type of flipbook animation, each page of the cartoon fully hand-drawn on rice paper, including non-changing backgrounds traced from the previous page. The 12-minute film required about 10,000 handmade drawings, from which approximately 400 pages survived. Special effects pioneer Willis H. O'Brien brought to life fantastic creatures through, through stop-motion animation in The Lost World, adapted from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's 1912 novel and King Kong. Meanwhile, animation artists Walt Disney and Ub Iwerks were busy at their Laugh-O-Gram studio in Kansas City in 1922, creating comedies based on based around a human character named Alice. The films combined the movements of a live-action actress as she interacted with hand-drawn animation. In 1921, brothers Max Flesher and Dave Flesher formed the animation studio out of the Inkwell Films in New York City where they made surreal cartoons featuring Coco the Clown and Bimbo and created the singular Betty Boop and turned the comic strip character Popeye the Sailor into a movie star. The brothers formed Fletcher Studios in 1929, which produced two feature-length animated films, Gulliver's Travels in 1939, only the second American animated feature film, after Disney's 1937 Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Mr. Bug Goes to Town, featured in 1941. The same year, Fletcher Studios began releasing a series of groundbreaking animated short films starring Superman. Um, Walt Disney evidently incorporated sound into his cartoons by using a click track on the film which indicated to the musicians the beat to follow. Released in 1928, Steamboat Willie was the third Mickey Mouse short film, but the first Disney short to be released synchronized, released with synchronized dialogue and score. Cinema. In early cinema history, no movies were more thrilling than those based on fantasy. The French film pioneer Georges Millet brought fantasy to life through the use of special effects, hand-colored film stock, and animation in groundbreaking short films including A Trip to the Moon, 
The Kingdom of Fairies, and The Impossible Voyage. The German Expressionist filmmakers of the 1920s excelled at the use of fantastic imagery within their films and their marketing. The dark fantasy films, The Golem, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, um, say that with a question mark because I don't know how you pronounce it, uh, uh, Nosferatu, Destiny, and Phantom served as an emotional outlet to the German people following their country's defeat in World War One. Illustrated movie posters became a hot commodity and essential for marketing a movie. It's what a pa- patron sees first, possibly before they even see a trailer for the film. So, uh, Norman Rockwell did the Fantastic, no, I'm sorry, The Magnificent Ambersons, Citizen Kane, The Song of Bernadette, The Razor's Edge, Stagecoach, and Cinderfella. Bob Peake did West Side Story, Camelot, um, Camelot, I should say, Superman and Excalibur, Richard Amsel, Flash Gordon, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and The Dark Crystal, Drew Struzan. Uh, he did the Star Wars films, the Muppet movie, Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, Hook, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, and the Harry Potter films. Gaming. The role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons was first published in 1974, created by Gary Gygax and Dave um, Arneson. Using a combination of mathematics and many-sided dice, which helped to determine actions. All the players work as a team in the campaign. The characters may find hidden treasure, dangerous dungeons to explore, and a band of monsters waiting to attack. Magic the Gathering is similar in concept but with cards instead of modeled figures and dice and players work on opposite sides and rely on chance as well as skill. The monsters and creatures of Dungeons and Dragons are inspired by ancient mythology and characters and settings from J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings books. Elves, dwarfs, orcs, and hundreds of other creatures exist in the fantasy realm. The most notable fantasy artists who worked on both Dungeons and Dragons and Magic the Gathering follows. David Trampier, Moloch, uh, it was on, it was the cover of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Handbook circa 1978. Larry Elmore, Magic the Gathering, DC Comics, and Dragon Magazine. And Jeff Easley, Creepy, Eerie, Big Red Dragon, the cover of the new easy to master Dungeons and Dragons dungeon game. Also, World of Warcraft. It's an online role playing game where Players can create characters, interact with other players, and battle monsters all online versus in person. In the silent times, more and more artists are getting their start or have worked in video game fantasy illustration. Similarly to the writers and painters who first showcased their work in periodicals and pulp magazines. The Future of Fantasy Illustration The themes have been constant in myths, sacred texts, folklore, and fairy tales told to frighten and amuse. Fantasy art was revered for millennia. However, during the Age of Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries, 
the division between science and mythology widened and fantasy was increasingly viewed as an interest of the less educated. Narrative illustration, likewise, came to be considered an inferior art form. Illustration, however, unlike some modern art, presents insights into the characteristics that make us human. As long as artists can find work drawing illustrations in books or magazines, creating powerful advertisements, crafting original fairy tales, designing concept art for films, inventing new creatures to fight in role-playing games, or posting works in progress on Instagram, fantasy art will be a powerful force. Will always be a powerful force, I should say. I also would like to add that more women, LGBTQIA, and Black Indigenous people of color artists are not just entering the fantasy art field, but they've been recently recognized by a wider audience thanks to the internet. They've always been there, but known only by other artists or they catered to a certain niche so only they knew about them. Overall, it's one thing to be educated, view the world and its inhabitants practically, but humans are more complex and so is imagination. It's not black and white one way or the other. There's no right or wrong answer. Um... It's more about what the artist slash creator feels can be right or can exist if they believe hard enough. And with the right amount of innovation, tools, and resources, sometimes they do become real. Never abandon the imagination. That was said by uh, Tony DiTerlizzi, I believe is how you pronounce his name. But yeah, never abandon imagination. It's it's what makes the world go around. It's what makes a lot of things possible while we have the technology that we have today. Because someone had the nerve, they had the audacity to dream and imagine that those things can be possible. Again, this has been the History of Fantasy Art. I'm K.S. Garner, and you've been listening to the Solo Nerd Art Podcast. Thank you.